0: Turn again with me, please, to the book of Genesis. We'll be reading again verses 46 to 52 of chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, beginning with verse 46. We heard a few minutes ago the account of the dreams, first in prison, that Joseph interpreted, and then with Pharaoh himself, the mighty one of Egypt. And just a few of the verses uh, I will read again as our lesson for our sermon this morning, verses 46 to 52. Now Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom a the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, "'God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household.'" He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. So here we have Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. It's been many years since we've left him. He has had two years, even since he interpreted the dreams, in prison. And we have heard this morning how God has used Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And because of this evidence of God's wisdom resting on Joseph, Pharaoh, we see, has lifted Joseph up out of Potiphar's dungeon to the position of what? Second in command throughout the whole Egyptian empire. Uh, He was the grand vizier. The prime minister, a combination of the prime minister and the minister of agriculture. So things have taken a dramatic turn for the better for Joseph. A few years ago, there was a a movie called Trading Places. And I wonder how many of us would think of trading places with Joseph now in his new position of wealth and power and prestige. If we look at this story, it's similar to David and Goliath. It's similar to a whole bunch of different accounts in Scripture And it's really a very sweet story. It's the the old story of the little guy makes good. Almost a Horatio Alger story. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Imagine putting yourself in Joseph's mind. Imagine what he would have thought at that point about Potiphar's wife. The sweet revenge that he now had on her, if this was what mattered to Joseph. Joseph. You can imagine him thinking, hey, 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 look at me now. I think I'll sashay over past Potiphar's house and and let his wife get a look at this chariot. Check it out. In fact, this is probably, in Scripture, this is the first time we run into chariots, so maybe it was a brand new Mustang. Uh, Quite an apparatus of conveyance. So Joseph was sitting in the catbird seat. But then we have to ask ourselves the questions before we jump into Joseph's clothes and begin to sashay with him whether we think that we could handle the position that Joseph now had. And immediately when we ask ourselves this question, we have to stop and say, all right, what was it that prepared Joseph for the position that he now has? And immediately we're reminded an awful lot prepared him for it. How much strength of character and how much integrity does it take to function in a position like this without compromising ourselves? What is it like having this kind of authority over the empire of Egypt? How many of us could stand in the position of Joseph... Even at the little detail, which isn't really a little detail at all, of saying to Potiphar, or to Pharaoh, excuse me, no, the dream doesn't come with an interpretation because I'm so great, but rather the interpretation of dreams is of God. Right there, Joseph indicated the character that he had. Somebody compliments you on doing a good job at something. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to not accept the honor and to deflect it to God. It, it sounds hyper-pious. You know, you don't want to be a nerd. All glory to God. And yeah, that's exactly what Joseph said in the court of the great king. Now, how did this happen? Well, it wasn't an accident. It didn't happen uh, haphazardly. And the minute we look at ourselves and think, well, you know, I'd like to be put in the position of Joseph. I wonder whether God has anything like that prepared for me. We have to ask ourselves whether we are prepared to submit to the preparation that would make us able to be used in such a position. When we say that we'd like to trade places with Joseph, do we mean that we'd like to trade places with him now, at the point where we picked this story up, Or do we mean that we would like to trade places with him back when he's in a home that's filled with hatred? Or would we like to trade places with him when he's in the pit or when he's sold to the Ishmaelites? Or when he is thrown into the dungeon after a false accusation by Potiphar? Or after he's properly interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's two servants and one of them is restored and he's forgotten despite his request that they remember him. Is that the part of his life that we wish that we could trade places for? Well, of course, at that point, most of us would say that we would not like, really, when you get right down to it, to switch with him then. But now... And so we prove ourselves normal and we also prove ourselves to be Americans because we want instant gratification. We want all pleasure and no pain. Something very interesting in, in reading books, stories, watching movies, and that is, uh, maybe maybe this is my own weirdness, but... When there's a story that has some sort of heroic, uh, moment where there's a catharsis and, and, and you're led to cheer and to have tears of joy at the victory finally after all those labors, uh, how often do we stop at that moment and remind ourselves what brought that about? And that's one of the dangers of all, um, of all cheap, uh, vicarious living which is, of course, what what all these forms of entertainment are, is that you can somehow feel like you're participating in a moment of glory without ever having to suffer the preparation for that moment. Uh, You look at Lance Armstrong, and he's done it again. It's a a great moment. But nobody was with him when he was spending the rest of the year uh, taking himself to the point of torture, so that he would be able to do it again. My image of Larry Bird is is actually not any game or anything I ever watched because I never really watched him, but my image of him is always uh, his unbelievable discipline in going into the gym and shooting baskets. Well, Joseph did the equivalent. It was much more difficult. He wasn't Owner of his own time, he was not able to leave the places he was kept. Whether it was Potiphar's house or the pit uh, back in Canaan, or whether it was the prison uh, that he was where he was for years. Today, many of us, as normal men and women, but also as normal Americans, we have bought into a fundamental dishonesty or lie and that is that you can make a decision that leads to pleasure and immediately if that decision leads to pleasure it's the right decision that you can make a decision that leads to pain and you can immediately be assured that that decision is the wrong decision. It's a curious fact that we still recognize the necessity of pain and suffering though in so many areas of life. The discipline and training are recognized as being valuable in uh, the way we take care of our plants. If any of you have had occasion to uh, care for crab apples or for actual fruit trees, apple trees, or if you have uh, had a good hunting dog, you know that none of the things that lead to, to excellence, whether it's in plants or animals, come without pain. You know that you can't get good fruit unless the tree is pruned. You know that you can't get a good bird dog without discipline. You don't just say nice doggy, right? Um, But when it comes to our own character, we really do want pain without gain i 've mentioned before that, as I get older I I, I I find myself going more to the sports and business section, and it has to do with this that there is an internal discipline to sports and business, namely there's a bottom line, and Enron can hide it for a while, but out it will come, and the same thing is true of sports. You can talk about uh, all the money that the Yankees have to spend, but the bottom line is do you win or do you lose and there's a time when the manager or, or, or the coach has to resign if they lose. I mean, the statistics don't lie, you know? This, this is the kind of coach you are, you know? You have to admit it. And, uh, and so in these two areas, it's very interesting. We do still accept some sort of discipline. And certainly nobody can miss the discipline of sports. And yet, it's interesting that when it comes to, uh, even to academic life, um, I was talking to uh, <laughs> to John Crum, who some of you remember, some of you don't know him, but John was here for the last couple of years and asking him how his academic studies were going. And John was describing that uh, he's he's in a school where there isn't much expected of them and uh, he was describing one of his classes where essentially he was supposed to 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 do some reading and then come talk about the reading and then at the end of the semester and I forget how it went but it didn't seem that there were any things like quizzes or exams or well I think he said in all his classes and he has a full-time load I think he said he had either one or two papers to write. Well when it comes to academic life we're less tolerant of the kind of discipline that there is in sports. But when it comes to spiritual life, it seems that we have almost no tolerance for discipline and for suffering. Um, It's very interesting that when it comes to so many areas of life, we are willing to suffer for a greater good. But when it comes to the pursuit of godliness and holiness, we think we ought to be able to get it without suffering without discipline. So again, let me ask, do you want to be like Joseph? Do you want to be exalted as Joseph is here in all of the kingdom of Egypt under the command of Pharaoh? Do you want to produce fruit for God? Well, if so, you will have to suffer. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see that the suffering is not the result of blind fate, but it is the particular decision, not just the particular decision, but the particular love of God for his sons. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and who is one of our witnesses? Joseph, that's right, Joseph. Surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him... Endured what? The cross, despising the shame. not that very interesting? We always focus on the separation from his father that was so painful for Jesus. We also focus on the uh, physical pain. And yet here it says he despised the shame. Isn't it interesting that so often with us, the greater challenge to us is, in fact, not the physical pain, but it is the shame. And boy, in the United States today, for Christians who are Bible believing, uh, shame is, is, has, done, has done much that is terrible in silencing our witness. But Jesus, we see, despised the shame, and then the reward, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what has Joseph done? Joseph is now sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. And then it says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that what? You will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him for those "...whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons." And so on. Speaking of discipline speaking of God's use of discipline, speaking of the discipline and the shame and the suffering that Jesus our Lord, speaking of what? It starts out with the great cloud of witnesses. In Second Timothy 3.12, we're told, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not think of it this way, but Potiphar's wife persecuted Joseph for not giving in to sin. One of the most helpful texts in the Gospels for us to have our children memorize is John chapter fifteen, and it begins this way I am the true vine, says Jesus, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's not the way. It's counterintuitive. We wouldn't write it like that. We'd say that the branches that don't bear fruit, they're good for nothing, and you prune them and see if they come back. And just in one sense later in the text, that's what happens. But we wouldn't say that the branches that do bear fruit that we prune to produce more fruit. I mean, you know, what are you asking, you know? Um, If it's producing fruit, leave it alone, you know? It's doing what it's supposed to do, you know? Bug off, you know? Let it have some room, some space. Let it express itself. Its expression is in the right direction, you know? Don't be unrealistic. And yet we think about cross-country or marathon runners and we wonder how many of the top competitors have gotten to the top by the first time they won a race, everybody crowing about how good they are and leaving them alone. Or we can ask ourselves about marriages. How many marriages have become good, have become strong without pain? Or... Maybe this is a little too clear for our comfort, but how many mothers have brought God's gift of new life into this world without pain? How many parents see their children become independent adults without pain? And so there's really a rule in life, and the rule is that there is no growth and there is no excellence without pain without suffering, without discipline. It doesn't matter what kind of growth it is. This is an absolute rule. No growth is cheap. And yet it's again true of us that when it comes to spiritual growth, we want to take the path of least resistance. How curious that... We are willing to go through life the rest of our lives with shot knees because of playing high school football. But when it comes to sacrifice for Jesus Christ and for eternity, a coach who tells us the spiritual equivalent of get down and give me 50 push-ups is looked at like he's a monster. Or An elder who tells us to keep our hands off a man or a woman before marriage is thought to be unreasonable. Now, it is true that the world has an excuse for avoiding pain and discipline and suffering. And their reason for avoiding it is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The world is not living for the kingdom of God. The world is not looking for an eternal weight of glory. The world is in the here and now. It has no hope of eternity, and its sights are fixed on three score and ten, and sometimes by virtue of strength four score. But once you take off the first ten or fifteen years at the front end, because you're a child and you don't have much choice, and once you take off ten or twenty years at the far end, because by then you're in decline, Really, you narrow it down to not much time to do what you want to do and to have fun. And so, of course, the world is out for all the gusto it can get. Uh, The world is out to buy its toys and to live its pleasure. But when it comes to Christians, to you and to me, what is our excuse well, we look at Joseph and we see that God made Joseph ready for the load of responsibility he was to carry by putting him through trials. And it's if you think of scripture, you you know that this is not just true of Joseph. It was also true of Abraham and Jacob. You remember that Joseph's story began when he was 17 and now 13 years have passed. And another nine will pass before his story reaches its climax. So more than 20 years after his division with his brothers. And what about Abraham? How many years between the time of his promise and the time of the promise's fulfillment? 20 years. And what about Jacob? How many years do you remember that Jacob spent working for his father-in-law Laban? Well. No, not 7. No, not 14. 20. 20 or 21. He he ended up working for him for one and then the other, but it ended up being 20 years. And what about our Lord? Remember that Joseph is a, is is a type of our Lord. What about our Lord? Joseph began his ministry when When he was 30 years old, he took public office. And when did Jesus take public office? When he was 30 years old. What do we know about that time prior to him taking public office, our Lord? Well, what we know is that Jesus learned obedience, what? Through the things that he suffered. Today, here, those of us who are present in this sanctuary, many of us are suffering. Many of us are living in pain. And let me ask you, what is your attitude towards that pain? Now, I imagine that our minds are filled with all kinds of uh, ways of weaseling out of the application of Joseph's life. I imagine we're sitting there thinking, well, you know, nobody's about to put me into second of command in the kingdom. Uh, so my suffering, what? My suffering isn't worthwhile. It would only be second in command to President Bush that would cause me to be able to look at this stuff and, 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 and put up with it. Or I imagine many of us are thinking, well, uh, Joseph's suffering... Um, It was very, very different from my suffering. Joseph's suffering, I can see how God could use it to prepare Joseph for his future responsibilities, but my suffering, there's there's simply no purpose in it. My suffering is meaningless. Um, I mean, if, if I were to tell you what has happened in my past life, you, you would understand that that this simply can't be used by God in the way that Joseph's suffering was used for him. I mean, you know, I can look back and I can see how, uh, you know, God was able to use those brothers, putting them in a pit and selling them. I mean, after all, that's how he got Joseph down to Egypt. And, uh, you know, the antagonism in the home, uh, obviously, in order for him to be sold into slavery, his brothers had to hate him. and, And obviously, the... You know, the the whole thing with Potiphar's house uh, and his wife, I mean, how was he going to rise out of that house unless there was some degree of of alienation and antagonism developing between Joseph and Potiphar? Uh, You know, he had to be in prison where he'd run into people. And then in prison, um, you know, yeah, two years is a long time to spend in prison. But on the other hand... um, You know, look at what happened. I mean, it's very clear from the very beginning right through. If one of Joseph's, McLaren says this, Alexander McLaren, if one of Joseph's misfortunes had been admitted, his good fortune would never have come. If his brothers hadn't hated him, if he hadn't been sold, if he hadn't been imprisoned, he would never have ruled Egypt. Not one thread in the tapestry could have been withdrawn without spoiling the pattern. And so we look back, because we know the end of the story, we look back at Joseph's past and we say, well, you know, it perfectly fits together. I mean, it's just, it's amazing, you know. This is what God does in people's lives. But my suffering, it's entirely purposeless. Uh, My suffering is just dull. It's a dull ache. It's really not glamorous at all. And, uh, you know, Joseph... hmm, You can put up with a lot for that kind of results. And then the sweet revenge we all know is coming when those brothers are going to bow down to him. I'd put up with anything for that. (laughs) You know, my brothers, I'd love to see the day (laughs) bowing down in front of me. And my father. (laughs) Yeah, I'd put up with a lot for that. And so Jesus... We're into obedience through the things that he suffered, and his obedience took him what? Took him to the cross. He was trained for the cross. He was trained for the shame, to endure the shame. Really, in this life, except for the triumphal entry, and that lasted about a moment, except for that... The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. His life was a life of humiliation and then it ended nakedly in shame on our our equivalent of uh, of the electric chair. Joseph, for 13 years, lives in oblivion before he's rescued. And we need to recognize that the way that we deal with our suffering right now is an indication of what we believe about the nature of God. If we believe that God is both sovereign, completely powerful and authoritative, and that he is a lover of those who belong to him, then there is never such a thing as suffering wasted. Never. It just doesn't happen. Every single thing that comes to our life comes directly from the hand of God and is used by Him to conform us to the image of His Son. Now, it's true that when it comes to Jesus, Jesus' glory was not revealed in its full form until He was what? Until He was exalted at the right hand of His Father and truly the glory of Jesus Christ will not be fully manifested until his bride is led into the chamber so there's a sense in which we can say that Jesus has not yet been has not yet received his full glory the full fruit of his labors and the same thing is true of us there are many of us who will die having suffered for things, that we have absolutely no idea what the purpose of that suffering was. We see it with Joseph, but what about for us? Why do we suffer? Many of us will never have God tell us. But think about Joseph. There were many years that went by before he saw. In 1 Peter 4 it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because what he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There's a text of Scripture that is uh, very, very well-tuned to this that we're studying this morning. and it's found in Lamentations chapter three, and I'd like you to turn there with me, please. The reason this is particularly appropriate is as we read through it, you'll see that it points to youth. to men and women who are young and who bear the yoke. The Lamentations, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. (laughs) I had trouble. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Surely against me, verse 3, he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughing stock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind; therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail; they are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul; therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who what? Who wait for Him. To the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that He should bear the yoke in His youth. Let me read that again. It is good for a man that He should bear the yoke in His youth. Let him sit alone and be silent. Don't go crying to your roommate or to your mother. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe that this too has come from the hand of God? Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. Isn't that interesting how this text silences complaints by pointing to what? by pointing to our sin. And so what this text is saying to us is, you know, you suffer, and who of us can claim to have the kind of suffering that's described here? Who of us can claim anything analogous to the suffering of Joseph? But we talk about our suffering, and what the Bible says to us is, number one, nothing can come to us absent the power and authority and permission of God. that God is the author of everything, whether it's the death of children, whether it's imprisonment, or whether it's just the dull ache of shame, constant shame, ongoing shame from our past, that God is the author of this, that nothing comes to us that fails to pass through his permissive hand. But then it also says to us, if we're inclined to complain, it says that we ought to what? We ought to silence our mouths, and we ought to sit quietly and remember that it is good that we go through this. You say, well, there's absolutely no way. The pain that I've gone through, there's there's nothing redemptive about it. I say, look, you can't say that without flying in the face of the character and perfections of God. You simply can't do it. But then it goes on and it points us to our own sin. And this is something that is not very popular in the self-esteem climate and culture that we live in. But people, please tell me, who among us, who among us can in any way accuse god of not giving us our just deserts i mean think about that you know what do you deserve from god think about that you say well i can't think about that because my whole life i've had a mother who's told me that everything i do is perfect i say well then that that's that's your sadness Need to get another mother. That's a joke. <laughs> it's just a joke. But seriously, every child has the, should have the privilege of having a mother who doesn't think that he's wonderful. Every child ought to have a mother who points out to him his sin. Because as we see our sin, then we begin to shut our mouths and to realize That if God gives us discipline, that it is for our good and that God never ever uses that in our life without producing fruit that he has decided to produce. And that furthermore, even if it were entirely meaningless, it would have meaning because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And there is no kind of suffering that is any way analogous in this life to what we all deserve not on the basis of our own personal sin, but on the basis of our federal head Adam, who was told in the garden that when you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And you say, well, death would be preferable to what I go through. I'll never forget, and uh, I went down to, to, to minister at the Cambridge City Jail one time when I was in seminary. And I'll never forget the guys in that jail. Let me tell you, it was a nice jail. As jails go, I'm sure that they would have chosen that jail over whatever Joseph was in. And they were telling me, hell is here, man. It's right here. This is hell, man. And I just looked at them. I didn't know what to say to them. Because I I, I wasn't an inmate. So it's pretty hard for me to say, hey, you've got it great. After all, I was going to walk up that night. But how pathetic for any of us to think, this is hell, man, my life is hell. No, your life is not anything close to hell. Hell is perpetual. It never ceases. It's moment by moment. And as I was reading this last week, at least during life, If the pain gets too intense, God has given us an apparatus that causes us to pass out. At least if the emotions become too much, God has given us an apparatus that allows us to go to sleep. At least if the sickness becomes too much, God has given us the gift of alcohol and morphine. But not in hell. In hell, for eternity... Our ability to exquisitely experience the judgment of God will only grow. There will be no relief. We will only grow in our ability to see our pain and to experience it. Now, Only Americans could say, hey man, this is hell. And you look at your pain and you think of the many, many ways that God has allowed you to escape some of the suffering that comes as a result of it. You look at your children and you see the suffering they've gone through. And who among you can point to your children's suffering and not say an awful lot of their suffering is the result of their sinful decisions? Uh, by the way, as, as an aside, uh, even though it's very seductive, please don't use the expression bad choice. <laughs> bad choice is a euphemism for... Uh, wickedness, sin, uh, rebellion against God. If you if you want to teach your children to make good choices, teach them that they need to fear God and obey his commandments. That's what a good choice is. It's a choice that's in conformity to the character of God as is expressed in his law. And I think today, in, in terms of behavior, good and bad choices, wrong... Uh, is sort of uh, the the equivalent to what years ago we did when we labeled alcoholism a sickness. He's a very... Think today. Isn't it interesting how today we say he's a very sick man? When is the last time you heard anybody say he's a very evil man? So clinical language is slowly eroding the biblical witness. But the Bible doesn't know anything about Uh, The man who, uh, well, I'm not going to go into it, but think of diseases which are called sicknesses. Uh, I recently read a letter of a man where he talked over and over again about a wicked, wicked, wicked thing that he had done over and over again as his, his sickness. No, it's not his sickness. It's his wickedness. And uh, as parents, we should teach our children that every moment of every day they have a choice to honor God or to dishonor him, to submit to him or to rebel against him. And we also need to teach our children that when they suffer, very, very often their suffering is a direct result of our sin as their parents or their sin. And we should teach our children to recognize our sin and how our sin is, in fact, Uh, manifested in their lives in suffering in specific ways but then we need to teach them that when their suffering is not the result of their sin it is still entirely within the realm of God's authority and his justice for us to suffer in life because God has been kind to us and not consuming all of us the moment that we were conceived God did not owe us a life he did not owe us common grace he did not owe us any good He did not owe us a marriage of joy. He did not owe us children. He did not owe us three score and ten. When you eat of the apple, when you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. And so we are surrounded by good things that God gives us that are entirely undeserved. And in this text, it points this out to us. It very clearly says, Why should any living mortal, verse 39, or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Now, to jump out of the specifics of Joseph being made fruitful in the land of his suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He named his second son. Let us also remember the overarching plan of God that Joseph is working out. You will remember in Genesis fifteen that God said this to Abraham He said, Know for certain Genesis fifteen thirteen, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And so here we see the beauty of God's plan being worked out through Joseph. That you can look at this issue as being a personal issue with Joseph, but really the plan is above Joseph. Joseph is can be referred to really as a cog in the wheel of the... Sovereign will of God. Really, this isn't about Joseph. It's about the promise that God gave Abraham. And that promise, like a freight train with a hundred cars, it's going to happen. It's coming. You can't hold it back. And really, even Joseph and even his children and his wife and even his brothers and his father and everything we're going to see... All of this is just God's plan for His people. And it is going to happen. Let's pray.